title of the sermon today is The Bride of Christ. And we will be the Bride of Christ through the millennium, through the white throne judgment, and on through eternity. Well, who is going to be in the first resurrection? Well, Hebrews, the 11th chapter, you know, is the faith chapter. And this wonderful verse of Hebrews 11.13, I think I already mentioned it once. Hebrews 11.13, speaking of Abraham and Noah and all the uh, patriarchs, um, Abraham and Sarah and Abel and Enoch and uh, Noah, of course, as well. These all died in faith, Hebrews 11.13, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were tabernacling, they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You've embraced them. Some of us, you know, from time to time, we're not so sure. Our faith wavers, and we haven't really totally embraced the promises that we really need to cleave to them. Uh, there is the scripture, I, I, sometimes when I give a sermon, I have to do a Bible study because I don't remember exactly uh, the reference, but I'm going to give you a Bible study right now, if you don't mind. Uh, well, I better not take the time. But he's talking about we must cling to the eternal. He caused Israel to cleave one of the translations to the eternal. So I think about that when God causes us to cleave, hug him, to be so close to him that we are embracing him. So sometimes we waver in our faith, but we need to have that total commitment of embracing the promises, as it says here in Hebrews 11, verse 13, because that's what the men and women of faith did. They embraced the promises. We'll come back to this a little later. But who was going to be in the, the first resurrection? Well, those who are... Faithful, those who died in the faith, and I know you had your relatives. Of course, some of them will be in the first resurrection. Some will be in the white throne judgment. But I'd like a little time to consider the ministers and ministers' wives who have died in the last uh, since 2016 and 2017. I want to read their names. They died in the faith. In the greatest statement that could be made of anybody who's lived his life or her life, is that he or she died in the faith. In 2016, April 6th, we had uh, these ministers and ministers' wives who have died since April 6th, 2016. Roger Earl Geyer, age 77. I'm going to mention 19 ministers and wives who died in the faith. May 24th, Bruce Tyler, evangelist and Australasian regional director, age 71. May 27th, 2016, Gideon Benitez from the Philippines, age 60. May 27th, 2016, Carl Byersdorfer, age 73 from Joplin, Missouri. June 5th, 2016, Ray Reynolds, age 76, Oklahoma City. 
July 25, 2016, Eng Munson, age 76. Age, uh, August 5, 2016, John Burquist, age 95, from Alabama. October 6, 2016, Terrence Kennel, from Florida, age 54. November 27, 2016, Susan Durstein, age 72, wife of Elder Carl Durstein. December 3, 2016, James English, age 72, from Atlanta. December 28, 2016, Ron Peterson, age 85, from Florida. Joseph Picker, age 72, January 13, 2017, from the Tri-City areas in Washington. April 1, 2017, Ella Fry, age 80, wife of Elder Franklin Fry. May 18, 2017, Roderick C. Meredith, age 86, presiding evangelist. June 30, 2017, Mal Jennings, age 72, area pastor from Perth, Australia. August 1, 2017, Ron McGowan, age 79, Houston, Texas. September 8, 2017, Roy Monger, age 91, from Knoxville, Tennessee. September 10, 2017, Terrence Graves, age 82, from Washington State. And October 7, Glenn Travis, from Rolla, Missouri, age 78. So we mourn for our brothers and sisters in Christ and our elders and elders' wives, and of course we certainly appreciate the deacons and deaconesses and all of you who are servant leaders. Uh, God has called us to fulfill that mission statement Dr. Meredith mentioned, actually outlined the seven mission statements for the living church of God, and one of them is to practice servant leadership. And all of us have seen one another helping out here at the feast in so many different ways of practicing servant leadership, and we certainly appreciate that. Well, who else is going to be in the kingdom? And who else is going to be the wife and the bride of Christ? Uh, Turn to Matthew, the 8th chapter. Matthew 8. So it's not just us in the 21st century that are going to be the bride of Christ, the overcomers, but the patriarchs going all the way back to Abraham. As we saw earlier in Hebrews 11, even Noah, and uh, so forth. Matthew, the uh, 8th chapter, verse 11. Just I've emphasized this before, but I think it's important to realize God's government is a part of the family of God, the, the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. Matthew 8 and uh, verse 11. And Jesus is saying here to uh, those who, uh, the, the centurion uh, said, I'm not worthy, you know, to be in, uh, you come under my roof, verse 8 of Matthew 8. And he said, just say the word. I have a servant that says, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. <laughs> well, um, I thought, oh, I better not say that. I was talking and thinking. Well, I've mentioned it before in a marriage uh, seminar, so I I guess I can share something personal that, you know, I was in the Army, and so when I got married, 
I expected that when I said my wife go, she would go. And I expected when I said come, she would come. Well, it didn't work out quite that way. And we had to adjust. We had a marriage seminar last December in Charlotte in which uh, the theme was uh, we're still adjusting. And, uh, of course, we're preparing as the bride of Christ. And uh, that all was uh, stimulated by Mr. Bob Leake, who in Charlotte, when he was still alive, announced one Sabbath that this was their 62nd anniversary of uh, Faye and Bob Lee, and he said, uh, my wife was two years old when we got married. He, he wanted to uh, not reveal her age, but he said, we've been married for 62 years, and we are still adjusting. So that was very encouraging to me, because we've just been married 53 years, and we are still adjusting. But I'll tell you, my wife is just a, a jewel. I, if I, I don't think I'd be alive if it weren't for her. She's just so helpful and comforting through all my physical and health issues over the years. Uh, I just love her, and I just thank you. Thank God for her. Well, I say to unto you, um, well, that came back about go and, go and come. Uh, so I've learned to say to my wife, uh, please come, and that she does that. Okay. But to hear verse 11, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdoms will be cast out. When outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So who is going to be in the kingdom? Those who are of the men and women of faith, but also Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You turn uh, to Matthew 22, verse 32. And again, to emphasize how God honors the memory of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says, Matthew 22, verse 32. I am the God of Jacob. So Jesus Christ is talking about the scripture spoken to you by God, saying, verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So these three are going to be in the kingdom of God. They will be at the top of the hierarchy. They will be a part of the bride of Christ. Now, when we get married, we're resurrected at the last trumpet. Where will we go? We've heard it uh, several times during the feast so far. We go to the sea of glass. Christ comes for the saints at the seventh trumpet. We go to heaven for the sea of glass wedding for nine days and then come back. Christ comes back with the saints just before the uh, day of atonement. But we will go to the wedding. And we have a instruction from Christ regarding our preparation for the wedding in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, you all know the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them are wise and five are foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels and with their lamps. 
But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Verse 6, And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Mr. Armstrong felt that he was one who proclaimed that warning, that announcement, that the bridegroom is coming. And I, growing up, did not any, have any, any idea that Christ was coming back to this earth until I heard the World Tomorrow program. And I was uh, 1959, I got out of the army, I was just depressed. Uh, all I could see on the, the horizon was a nuclear war between the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. And I was depressed. Like All I could see was nuclear cosmicide. But then I heard Mr. Armstrong, and he said, Jesus Christ is coming back. Uh, what? That was news to me. Yes, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And we need to be preparing for that awesome event. At midnight, the cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. All those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. A warning to any of us who are letting the oil go out of our lamps. We need to make sure that we don't let a day go by without praying. Uh, We've had that admonition here during the feast to pray and Bible study. We need to make sure that we are renewing God's Spirit in our lives and minds and hearts every single day. You don't want to miss one day without praying. If you do, you've had another God before the true God. You've actually transgressed the very first commandment You'd have no other gods before the true God if you've let a day go by without praying. Now, that's not committing the unpardonable sin. It's just a real warning to you that you are letting the oil go out of your lamp. And you need to make sure that you're renewing God's Spirit in your life every single day. And, of course, you claim God's promises of Luke 11:13. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children... How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So God wants you to be dependent on Him. He's the source of life through Christ. The Holy Spirit comes from the Father through Christ to us. And we'll give thanks to God for that. Verse 10, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. They went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So we look forward to that wedding. Let's go to Revelation 9, 7, 19, 7. We've read it several times, but let's understand it's an awesome calling that we have. An intimate relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Revelation 19.7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Yes, we are in preparation stages. We are training as kings, priests, and judges, and we are preparing as the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. We will become his wife at the marriage when we are there on the sea of glass. We already discussed this in terms of 
the uh, sequence of prophetic events coming up to the uh, return of Christ to fight the battle of Armageddon, as mentioned, starting with verse 11. So we look forward to that time that we are with the, with the Lamb as his wife. I wrote down a quotable quote uh, up there in Cincinnati, actually it's not Cincinnati, but Erlanger, Kentucky, at the uh, northern Kentucky, they call it NKY, was our logo up there for the feast. Uh, Mr. Phil Senna uh, made this statement, quotable quote I wrote down, God is all about relationships. God is all about relationships. Is that a true statement? When you consider Mark 12, verse 20, the first great commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors as yourself, that's all about relationships. I was uh, kidding one time, one of the uh, freshmen that, came to Ambassador College, was giving his, giving his icebreaker, and he was from a farm background. And, and uh, he said he just really loved the chickens and the ducks, but he didn't like human beings. And uh, I understood. I can sympathize with him. Uh, but God says you need to even love your enemies. So you need to love human beings. That's what God is all about, about relationships. Loving him and Christ and loving our neighbors and even loving our enemies. So as the bride of Christ, what are we going to be doing during the millennium and on beyond? The latest Tomorrow's World magazine has the cover article, The World After World War III. And we realize, yes, there's going, World War III is coming and the whole world is going to be devastated, but it has to be renewed. And when the new Jerusalem comes down, actually the new temple is built, we know that the waters will go out from the east and the west will heal the waters on the Dead Sea and uh, the Mediterranean Sea after everything is dead. As we read, every living thing in the sea dies at the seven last plagues. So life will have to be renewed. But we will look forward to the time of peace. And Mr. DeSimone's, uh, I guess, uh, professional, uh, meticulous, uh, masterful presentation last night, uh, of the, yesterday in the sermon on the timeline, uh, just really almost brought me to tears when he wrote down after the establishment of the kingdom, after Gog and Magog, and wrote the word peace. Peace. The world will be at peace. There'll, of course, be that transition period that I brought about in the, in the sermon, establishing the kingdom. But just to think of world peace, how awesome that will be. We realize that we will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years, but as the bride of Christ, what is your relationship to Him? Is the Lamb of God kind of distant in your mind or maybe just a, a figure from the scriptures but do you have a personal relationship with Christ all of you who have been baptized should have had that personal relationship you probably shed tears I know even after baptism I shed deep tears 
when God helped me to see some of my sins in the past. But you realize personally, if I were the only human being on earth, Christ would still have to come to shed his blood to pay for my sins. And you realize, yes, he loves you and he gave himself for you. He is our Passover sacrifice for us, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. We want to turn to Galatians 2.20, Dr. Meredith's favorite verse. Of course, this is uh, the New King James uh, has it incorrectly, uh, the faith in Christ, but the correct translation be the uh, faith of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless, lest I live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, it should read, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's a personal relationship. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Think of yourself as the only person in the world. And realize that that verse applies to you. Now we are going to be the bride of Christ, so we want to take a look in our preparation to the instruction to husbands and wives in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians 5 And starting with verse 20, of course, it says, uh, giving thanks always uh, to for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you've been thanking God continually. Um, uh, Sometimes I I forget what the occasion was, but it was something that was uh, very merciful from God uh, giving me from a throne of grace and Instead of saying thank you, I said thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I still do from time to time. But giving thanks to God always. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's part of the preparation of being the bride of Christ. I submit to my wife. And uh, did I tell you the uh, five, how many of you know my five second rule? Let me see your hands. Okay, that's a good scattering. That's about 7%. So you've heard me tell the story dozens of times, but for the other 93%, uh, please be patient and let me tell the story. Uh, My wife and I were traveling one time, and uh, we were in a hotel room, and we had a little manicure set. And my wife said, well, Dick, do you have the manicure set? And I just glanced at my open suitcase, and there it was. I grabbed it and threw it to her within five seconds. And from that moment on, whenever she asked me for something, I tried to get it to her within five seconds. And on occasion, she can get something to me within five seconds. But that is one of my dedicated five-second rules, try to respond to my wife. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So now we're getting that intimate relationship with Christ. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. He loved me and gave himself for me, we have just read in Galatians 2.20. Time and time again we see this message. That Christ loved us and gave himself for us. 
Then we find that he continues that he might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So he's saying here that this is a mystery. It has to do with the church, even yes. Uh, It has to do with practical relationships and responsibilities of husbands and responsibilities of wives. We thank Mr. Lyons for his sermon at yesterday on uh, Christian responsibility. Uh, As I tell young people who are uh, counseling for marriage, you cannot change the other person. You can only change yourself. And you have a God-given responsibility for God to fulfill your husbandly responsibility as a husband, and you, wife, have a God-given responsibility to fulfill your godly, wifely responsibilities before God. And yet he says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So we are members of his body, as it says in the end of verse, uh, at the beginning of uh, verse 30, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And so this great mystery is telling that that intimate relationship that we should have with, with Jesus Christ. Along that line, we might think of John 3.16. Oh, I've, I already gave you the answer. I was just going to give the answer. How many of you know Don't raise your hands because I already gave you the answer. How many of you know what is the precious verse of the Bible or also called the golden verse of the Bible? Uh, When I've given that survey, only 10% of our people know that. All Protestants know that that is John 3.16. Let's turn back there to John 3.16. And again, we find God's love. We find the love of Christ towards us. John 3.16 used to be... When you would see a NFL football game on television, you'd see big banners, John 3.16. But they probably have prohibited that. We haven't seen that in quite some uh, last few years. The precious or golden verse of the Bible, John 3.16. No one has, I'm sorry, for God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's an awesome promise that God gives us. The Protestant world does not understand this verse. So Mr. Gerald Weston wrote a seminal booklet on John 3.16, Hidden Truths of the Golden Verse. How many of you have read at least one chapter of that booklet? Okay. Well, that looks like about 52%. Uh, brethren, you really need to get that booklet and read it. John 3.16. Right? Even the very first, has eight chapters. And each chapter is talking about John 3.16. The first word is God. And the world doesn't even, <clears throat> the world doesn't even know who and what God is. They think God is a trinity. And no one can be born into that trinity. It's a a falsehood. It's a heresy. It's an error, doctrinal error. But 
Mr. Weston covers the matter of the Trinity in that first chapter in John 3.16, explains, of course, that God is Elohim, as Mr. Armstrong did for so many years. Uh, God, Elohim, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God is a family. And our former association rejected that and went to uh, traditional uh, evangelical Christianity, which is so in error. It's Trinitarian. And that just, of course, blocks out who and what God is. And even I receive uh, publications uh, from uh, Catholic uh, University uh, because I subscribe to a magazine called First Things, which is a Catholic publication. So I <clears throat> get Catholic um, oh, requests uh, for donations for various uh, of their, their charities. But one card I received one time from Pontifical University. God is Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Holy Spirit is the third person. And Mary is married to the Holy Spirit. Wow! What a horrible, horrible doctrinal fallacy that saying it very kindly because if Jesus Christ was begotten by the Holy Spirit then the Holy Spirit's the father and Mary's the mother of God that's the way they believe that's horrible because God is the father not the Holy Spirit is the father and Mary of course is the mother of Jesus but God is the father begat Jesus through the the uh, egg that was in Mary's womb. So you have those errors. But please, brethren, if the, the other uh, half of you that have not read even one chapter of John 3.16 booklet, please get that booklet and read it. It is powerful. It states this is what the living church of God believes. It outlines the whole plan of God. And... and uh, has talked about uh, what love the world, that he gave himself, gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. What does it mean, perish? Well, you don't really perish because you, if you're evil, you burn forever as an immortal soul in a so-called uh, everlasting fire and have everlasting life. So please get that book. It's a wonderful booklet uh, written by Mr. Gerald Weston, and I hope that all of you do that. We're talking about our intimate relationship as the bride of Christ preparing for the wedding. One of the uh, wonderful relationship books in the Bible is the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. You turn back there, that's just right after Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then you have the Song of Solomon. Uh, Verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, the New King James does uh, uh, particularly uh, bracket it off with the various uh, uh, elements of uh, the drama. It's kind of like a, a play with, a, in this case, the Shulamite and uh, her beloved and also the daughters of Jerusalem. There are three different uh, characters in this particular play throughout Uh, The old King James doesn't even break it up, so you don't even know who's talking, but this is an attempt to doing it. In other words, 
what it's saying is that Solomon is a type of Christ, and the Shulamite woman is a type of the church, and the harem are, of course, the, uh, are jealous of uh, the Shulamite woman who is the bride. But the Amplified takes a, a little different uh, approach to it. It has four characters. Solomon, who is trying to woo the Shulamite woman, and the unseen shepherd, and the daughters of Jerusalem, and, of course, uh, the Shulamite woman. So you have the bride, Solomon, the harem, and the unseen shepherd. So in this case, just taking a look, uh, the idea for the Jewish approach is that this shows God's love to Israel. The Christian approach is saying this shows Christ's love to the church. And uh, the one that I'm mentioning, the Amplified, is saying that, no, the fourth uh, character is Solomon, who is trying to woo the church symbolically. He is the world trying to woo the Christian church away from the unseen shepherd. And so in verse 8, where it has the New King, uh, New King James Version, the Beloved, Really, in the Amplified, has that not the Beloved is speaking to the Shulamite woman, but Solomon is. Solomon is trying to, representative of the world, attempt the church into the world. So what do we read here? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats behind the shepherd's tent. Verse 9. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. That's not something that Christ would say as the unseen shepherd. That's something that Solomon would say trying to woo this woman. But she is going to be faithful to her unseen shepherd representing Christ. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. And then, of course, the daughters of Jerusalem chime in here. Now, under the uh, Jewish tradition, I'm not sure what age it was, but uh, uh, apparently uh, um, you had to be at least uh, 20 years of age, or uh, you had you, before you could even read the Song of Solomon, uh, because it's pretty specific in terms of intimate love and relationships between a husband and wife. But I do want to point out two scriptures here. The Shulamite woman, symbolic of the church and her love for the shepherd, says this in verse 16 of chapter 2. Verse 16 of chapter 2. And you think of it of your relationship personally with Christ and the church's relationship with Christ. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Now think of that. That is a close relationship. Years ago, we had a lady in the church who was dying of cancer. And there were about 30 different women in the church who were helping her. But she was a little, I think, demanding towards her husband. In fact, her kind of her attitude was... Uh, you know, you belong to me, buddy. But she was dying. 
And the women told her on the day that she died, which was a day of atonement, like 1965, that she was about just before she died. She was lying down, called her husband over, and he lifted her up to a sitting position, and she said, I belong to you. She didn't say, you belong to me, buddy. I belong to you. And uh, there were tears in her eyes, and uh, she died shortly after that. But notice that the the arrangement here of verse 16 in chapter 2 changes in chapter 6 and verse 3. The order changes. Instead of saying, my beloved is mine first... She says, chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. And I hope, brethren, that's meaningful to each of you as you think about your relationship to Christ. It has that deep meaning in our relationship. How intimate is that relationship going to be? Let's turn to John, the 17th chapter. John 17. And here we realize that one of the big picture relationships that we have is rejected by some of our people who even left the church over the matter thinking that, well, we can't go to the sea of glass because we've been told uh, you never go to heaven. Well, of course, uh, we still believe that, there, as Mr. Simone mentioned, that our reward is not heaven. Our reward is the earth, and we're going to be on the earth, but we are being just so close to God the Father, so close to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, that we will be intimately with them and right there at the Sea of Glass. And I appreciated Mr. DeSimone's comment yesterday. Who is authorized to conduct the wedding between Christ and the church? Only God the Father is. And we will be for God the Father on the Sea of Glass for that wedding. But how intimate are we? You can't get more intimate than what Jesus prayed here in John, the 17th chapter. John 17, starting in verse 20. Well, even just notice verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. Verse 20 of John 17. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I heard that earlier today. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Did you really process that? Do you really understand what that's saying? That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The Father and Christ are one in spirit. And they're saying you, uh, that they also may be one in us. That we may be one with God the Father and with Christ. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one Just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you have sent me 
and have loved them and as you have loved me. And verse 26, And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So if we are one with the Father and one with Christ, we can also as immortal, glorified spirit beings be in a different dimension. God the Father and Christ were in a dimension that was irrelevant to time. God created time. When he put the uh, motions, the planets in motion and, and uh, the solar system and so forth, uh, there was no time before that. And God is in a different dimension where the galaxies that are billions of light years in the, in the future, you know, that, that's time, but it's not out of God's time. He's in a different dimension. It doesn't take time for God to be at a galaxy that's two billion light years out there. When you realize each galaxy is going out into the uh, many hour, and of course Hubble discovered that, and Einstein had to come to uh, Pasadena at Mount Wilson, and my wife and I have toured uh, the telescope there when uh, demonstrating that Hubble discovered that galaxies were going out into space at a hundred million miles an hour. you got to be kidding. No. And Einstein had to actually uh, agree that that was so. But now, a hundred million miles an hour, they, well, we can't catch up with that. You know, it's going to be out of, of God's uh, purview and his command. No, nothing. He controls the universe. And as a different dimension, we can be before God the throne in an instant of time and be back. But God wants us to be in time over the thousand years of the millennium and the white throne judgment so he can add thousands and billions more to his family. But notice that awesome relationship, I in you, and that they may be one in us. So just as we are one, end of verse 22, we have that intimate and awesome relationship. So as the bride of Christ, we are preparing as sons and daughters, and we need to understand how that process takes place, because the world does not understand. God is reproducing himself, but how is the process? What it takes place? You know, God calls us the Holy Day Offering, the Holy Day festivals and uh, annual festivals, the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, teach us. We're reconciled to God. But then the Days of Unleavened Bread, we have to do something. Our part in the character-building process, we have to overcome Satan, ourselves, and the world. And we just had the telecast by Mr. Wallace Smith, and how can you overcome Satan? We already know that process. I don't need to, well, uh, let me just turn to that while I think of it. First John, we realize that, yes, we have a whole process of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And it tells us here in First John, um, the second chapter, that we are to not love the world, neither... If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, 
The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. How do you overcome? Verse 13, I write to you young men in the middle of the verse, because you have overcome the wicked one. End of the middle of verse 14, I have written to you young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. So we realize that, yes, God's holy days and festivals give the whole plan of salvation, that once we're reconciled to God, we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And I gave you that uh, scripture, I guess, yesterday. It was Second Peter uh, 1 and verse 4. Maybe it was that last night. That uh, Well, let me just read it for the rest of you who were not there last night. Second uh, Peter 1 and verse 4. The whole process of our becoming spirit beings. Second Peter 1 and verse 4. By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God is giving us his divine nature. And it's just, it is a miracle. I asked the, my class in Ambassador College years ago, what proves to you that God exists? And one young man said, of course, we have the traditional proofs of create God as a creator, lawgiver, life giver, sustainer, designer, one who fulfills prophecy and answers prayers. It's a whole way of life, and we've had some telecasts on that topic. But this young man said, if God did not exist, I would not be alive today. I would be in prison, or I would be in, I would be dead, because he answered my prayer and saved me from my habit, from my addiction, and I'm alive, and I know God exists. And of course he tells us in 1 John 2, Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. So God gives us the way of knowing him, and we uh, that's 1 John 2, verse 3, by the way. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. So God begets us, we receive the Holy Spirit after Baptism and the laying on of hands, then we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and then we are born into the kingdom of God when? At the resurrection. And how do we know that? Because Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. That's Romans 8, verse 29. I won't turn there. But turn to Romans, the first chapter. And this is the, what the world does not understand that God has revealed to us and the, the amazing Begettle and birth process. Romans 1. And uh, how was Christ born into the kingdom of God? First of all, verse 3, Romans 1, verse 3, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. But how was he declared to be the Son of God with power by a resurrection? Well, that's, I just answered the question. Verse 4. Declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. So he's the firstborn of many brethren by a resurrection from the dead. And we, by a resurrection from the dead, or if we're alive and changed in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, we become God's born-again children at the resurrection. In the meantime, of course, we are preparing, and then we go to the sea of glass, 
and we inherit all things. We are now co-heirs with Christ in that awesome 8th chapter of Romans, one of the most beautiful and outstanding and inspirational chapters in the whole Bible. We call it the Holy Spirit chapter. And he says we are co-heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are children of God, heirs of God. We're going to inherit what? I don't know. How many of you have actually inherited something from uh, parents or grandparents? Let me see your hands. Oh, that's very good. Probably about uh, 40% of you have inherited something. Well, we are heirs. We're not yet inheritors, but we are heirs. What are we going to inherit? Can you think of anything the Bible says that we're going to inherit? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And there are several other scriptures. We will inherit the kingdom, Matthew 25, verse 34. We will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1, verse 14. We will inherit all things, Revelation 12 and verse 7. And if you turn to Hebrews 2 and verse 8, we will inherit, of course, the universe. Or in the Hebrew, ta panta, meaning the all. That's Hebrews 2 and verse 8. And that's being quoted, of course, from Psalm 8. When David was contemplating, when I see the heavens above, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, David began to see his relationship to the universe and wonder just what a tiny little speck I am on this earth. And when you, when you look at uh, the photo from out of space, it was called the pale blue dot and uh, was taken from one of the spacecrafts of the uh, Milky Way. And there's actually a photograph uh, of it. In fact, we had it in the Plain, uh, Plain Truth magazine. The Tomorrow's World magazine uh, had that photo. The, the strip of the uh, Milky Way galaxy, and there's this little tiny dot, and that's planet Earth. It was actually photographed from space. And uh, the atheist, uh, oh, what's his name, the uh, cosmologist, um, who? yeah, what's his name? Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. Thank, thank you. That's 50 extra points to him. <laughs> Carl Sagan, yeah, Carl Sagan. So, We're meaningless. Look at this little dot in this whole cosmos. We are meaningless. No, we are not meaningless. But when we realize how tiny we are, as David asked the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? We take it this vast universe. We are nothing. We are nothing in one sense, but we are precious in God's sight. Because Jesus Christ shed his blood for you and for me. And we are valuable. We are very valuable in God's sight. And so he says here in Hebrews, the second chapter, when uh, quoting from Psalm 8, where and David said, uh, you made verse 7, Hebrews 2. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set over him the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under his under him, that's mankind, 
He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. So when it says you put all things in subjection under his feet, verse 8, the Greek is ta panta, the all. And the lexicons point out that means everything seen and unseen. And when we read uh, Romans 1, which I, I didn't read that previous verse, verse 3 and verse 2, it talks that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Moffat and other uh, translations have it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we're going to inherit the universe along with Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. We understand that as time goes on, we will be serving people uh, as the bride of Christ, kings, priests, and judges. And priests, of course, intercede. They pray for other people. Priests had the responsibility of teaching the law, of teaching God's way of life. And we need to be able to do that. I don't. I presume you've already read Isaiah, the 30th uh, chapter, where you'll see your teachers before you and, and uh, hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. You've had that read to you once during the feast? Okay, only three people say yes. Uh, well, I hope you read Isaiah, the 30th chapter, when... Uh, That's what we will be doing. As spirit beings, we can manifest ourselves as physical beings, teaching physical human beings the way of life. This is the way walk you in it. Remember Jesus, even after his resurrection, told Doubting Thomas, put your fist in my side and your fingers in my hands and the holes. He manifested himself in the flesh. And then when they met at the Sea of Galilee, what did Jesus do? He ate fish along with his disciples. So, Mr. Senna gave a whole sermon on food, uh, showing that, yes, uh, God loves food. And when we have a wedding supper, it says Christ is going to sit down and serve us. And yet, it says that God made wine to cheer the hearts of man and God, and also will have a sumptuous wedding feast. So God must have some kind of a, a way of enjoying spiritual food. And I'm sure we will too at the sumptuous wedding uh, supper that Christ will provide for us at that wedding. But we will inherit all things. Turn to Revelation, the uh, 14th chapter, Revelation 14. And here again we see that the, the bride of Christ... In this case, 144,000 uh, standing on the Sea of Glass. Or chapter 15, we saw the Sea of Glass <coughs> reference. <clears throat> but here in chapter 14, Behold, I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now this is heavenly Mount Zion, not the physical Mount Zion. I look to behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, <coughs> having his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it was a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. 
Now, the critics say, well, every time it's talking about the sea of glass, it's the portable throne, Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. The portable throne, so-called, did not have the four living creatures and the 24 elders on that portable throne. And it does tell us back in, I guess it's uh, Exodus 23, that 70 of the elders, along with uh, Moses and Aaron and uh, one other, uh, saw God and ate before him. So that was the one, of course, that became Jesus Christ. But where is this? This is on before God's throne as described in Revelation 4, where you have the 24 elders and the four living creatures. So there's no mistaking about where this is. They sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So they, they're not on the earth, they're redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. That is, for they are virgins. That is, spiritually speaking. Uh, so many, you know, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, some of you were fornicators, adulterers, uh, but now you are sanctified. And some were such of you, he told them. So it's not talking about physical virgins. It's talking about spiritually uh, pure and uh, spiritual virgins who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So again, these are the ones who follow Christ wherever he goes. And he's going to be in heaven for the wedding. We will be with him at that time. We have an intimate relationship with Christ. We will throughout the millennium and throughout the uh, white throne judgment uh, be teaching as kings, uh, ruling as kings, teaching as priests, but also interceding. A priest, as I mentioned, is teaching God's way of life and law, but also a priest intercedes for others. And the Apostle Paul told us, prayers and intercession should be given to all people, kings, magistrates, for all kings, and that we may lead a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Uh, my Bible study, First Timothy, let me just check on that. First Timothy 2? Yes, I guessed right. First Timothy 2. That we may lead a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God wants us to be saved, but we are interceding for others. We pray for others. He says that we are to love our enemies. Look at Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew 5. When he says you've got to become perfect, what does he mean? Well, it can be translated mature, but we need to be perfect in unconditional love. People, mothers who do not have God's Holy Spirit, many of them have natural affection. But in this end time, many not eat, not have many mothers, I say many, uh, commit abortions and uh, all that type of thing, do not have even natural affection. 
But Christians have to go beyond natural affection. We love one another, but what else must we love? Matthew 5, verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those that spitefully use you and persecute you. To give intercessory prayers even for those who are persecuting you. You can't do that normally in a carnal mind, but you can with God's Holy Spirit. And I hope you pray that God will give you the love, that you can pray for your love, pray for the brethren, and pray for kings and those who are in authority that we just read in 1 Timothy 2, and pray for your enemies. I One time I was passing by a room where my wife was praying, and we had several enemies of the church at that time. And she was praying for them. I was just surprised when I walked by. She was actually naming some of the enemies of the church that she was praying for. You need God's Holy Spirit to do that. But priests intercede for others. And when physical human beings are having problems, you can say, I was there. I had that smoking problem. But I overcame it with Christ's help. I had that sexual temptation when I was a physical human being but I was able to overcome it I can identify with your problem I was there I was tempted in those points but Christ was tempted in all points of course without sin so as a priest in the kingdom of God you'll be able to help people and of course comfort people as well those who have come out of the Holocaust and of the great captivity coming on the second exodus. They're coming back to the Holy Land. and They'll be sorrowing and mourning. You'll be able to comfort them. As I said, as a, as a king and a priest, you'll have both the, those facets of loving, loving discipline, and also loving comfort and, and mercy. So in Matthew 5, he says that we are to love our enemies. And he continues there. Oh, I lost my place. Come back there to Matthew 5 and uh, verse 48. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do you not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's perfect with godly love, with unconditional love. We have conditional love when we rear our children, but we also have unconditional love. So when we think about the future, as we heard in the offertory message today, we as preparing as the bride, some of the churches of God say that's that's their main mission, is to prepare the bride. But they're not preaching the gospel. And they're not preparing the bride the way the bride is to be prepared by doing God's work, as we heard in the offertory message. That's how you prepare the bride. You fulfill the commission that Christ gave the bride to preach the gospel in all the world as a witness unto all the nations and make disciples of all nations, he says in Matthew 28. 
Preach the gospel unto all creatures, Matthew 16, 15. So we have that mission. And as we fulfill that mission, we are preparing as the bride of Christ. And we're growing the grace and knowledge of Christ and having that love that God gives us. God gives us a warning as well. If you turn to Revelation, the 22nd chapter, Revelation 20, 22, we realize that past the white throne judgment, but this is a message to us today because we're reading it today and we realize that John even said in Chapter 1 of Revelation, uh, just hold your place there, it said, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep these things which are written in it, for the time is near. That's what John wrote in Revelation 1 verse 3. But now here in Revelation 22, by the way, we are the Lamb's wife. I've titled the sermon, uh, The Bride of Christ. But we're also, in another terminology, the Lamb's wife. And you find throughout the book of Revelation the word Lamb mentioned. I was going to say your Bible study assignment is to count the number of times the word Lamb appears in the book of Revelation. One time it appears as the false prophet who looks like a lamb but speaks as a dragon in Revelation the 13th chapter but other than that false depiction of the lamb the lamb referring to the savior of the world king of kings and lord of lords occurs 25 times or more and here he says in Revelation 22 verse 12 Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. And he says in verse 14, Blessed are those who keep his, do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates of the city. So we look forward to that time when we will be with Christ, but he's telling us now, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Verse 7 of Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And uh, all the wonderful statements he brings out here in chapters 21 and uh, 22. But let me just read to you from the uh, book of Revelation here. Revelation unveiled at last on uh, On page 44, when we take it, the ultimate destiny that we have, we're going to be with Christ for the thousand years and throughout the millennium. You might turn to uh, Isaiah 65. Uh, Mr. Weston will certainly cover this in the uh, video this afternoon, but I want to emphasize a different aspect of that uh, hundred-year period of the White Throne Judgment. Isaiah uh, 65. I think uh, Mr. DeSimo may have referenced this as well. Isaiah 65. Uh, you know, verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Well, that happens after the white throne judgment, but this gives the context 
for the 100-year period. I won't read uh, verse 20 and verse 21, but verse 21, by 65, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So even the white throne judgment will be very similar to the lifestyle of the millennium. They'll build houses, they'll plant vineyards, but they'll only have that whole 100-year period. And notice in verse 25, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. Similar to Isaiah 11, verse 6, which is on the seal of the living church of God as the symbolic uh, symbolism of the millennium. So you have the same conditions in the white throne judgment as you have during the millennium. And, of course, we will be the bride of Christ as kings and priests both during the millennium and, of course, the white throne judgment. But where will we eventually reside? Turn to Revelation, the 21st chapter, Revelation 21. And we find here that the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. The earth was purified, as we saw in the sermon yesterday of First Peter, Second Peter 3, 9, that the earth is purified. The heavens melt with fervent heat. The earth is melts as well. But it's purified, so there's no more sin on planet earth. It's a new earth, and God the Father then can come down to this new earth that is totally purified. No vestige of sin whatsoever. Totally pure and clean and purified with fire. And so there's no more sea once that's uh, purified. Having a key, uh, that is, sorry. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. So what is this new Jerusalem that he's talking about? Notice uh, that it's called a bride adorned for her husband. And then he continues here describing this awesome new Jerusalem. Verse 9 of Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the Lamb's wife. And now he describes this beautiful city. Mr. O'Gwin writes and summarizes the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation, the mystery mystery unveiled, page 44. Now the end of the book of Revelation, John describes the glory of this great city with 12 foundations and 12 gates. The streets are of gold and the gates are each made of a single pearl. There is brilliant color and light pervading everywhere because the presence of the Father in Christ. Those who are part of Christ's bride will actually dwell in the new Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. After the earth is purified, 
and the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, where will we reside? The bride will reside in the new Jerusalem. While those who came later during the millennium and great white throne judgment will inhabit the remainder of the new earth. The rest of God's glorified family, the nations of those who are saved, will have unfettered access to the Father and Christ as the gates of the city will remain open day by day and there will be no night there. That's verses 23 and uh, through 26 in the description. They will have complete access to the tree of life that grows in the city and to the river of the water of life. So, brethren, we as the bride of Christ will actually dwell in the new Jerusalem and the bride of Christ is those composed of those who are in the first resurrection. That's what we're looking forward to. So we look forward to that time. And so he continues to say, verse 14, Revelation 21, The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And uh, verse uh, 12, uh, the gates had the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 22 of Revelation 21, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. The gate shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. Verse 27, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So brethren, we'll have that privilege and that opportunity to be in the new Jerusalem, which is called the Lamb's wife. I want to read in conclusion, almost conclusion, from uh, Dr. Meredith's book, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? And I hope you've all uh, had a copy of this and certainly so relevant to the Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day. Uh, all these headings that just uh, true education begins at home. Uh, teachers of joy, respect for teachers, agriculture and health. And Dr. Meredith includes this booklet by saying, And in that blessed role that we will have with Christ, we will have the wonderful opportunity to share the very love of God, the wisdom of God, the outflowing concern of God with those people who will live on through the millennium. May God grant this to be your future. May God help all of us to grasp his truly awesome purpose for our lives. And may God help each of us to go all out to do our part in preparing for a place of love and service in the very real world ahead. So, brethren, let's prepare as the bride of Christ. We will be dwelling eventually in the new Jerusalem, which is the Lamb's wife. In the meantime, we will live in Jerusalem, where it says in Revelation, I mean, uh, in Zechariah 8.3, that the Lord will dwell there. The last verse of Ezekiel, uh, the chapter, the last verse of Ezekiel said 
the city of Jerusalem will be changed. One of its names will be Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. So even Jerusalem is going to be called Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. Christ will dwell in Jerusalem and the new temple will be built. And we will help thousands of people, billions of people throughout the millennium and help them to learn God's way of life and help them into the family of God. And they will live in that other part of the new earth, not in the new Jerusalem, but in the new earth. So Christ said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. We prepare by growing in godly love. We want that unconditional love we read about in Matthew, the fifth chapter. We want that intimate love and relationship with Christ because I belong to you. My shepherd, I belong to you and you belong to me. I hope we have that intimate relationship. But if you are a faithful Philadelphian, let's look at one final scripture, Revelation, the third chapter. If you are a Philadelphian and you are overcomer, Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out. I will write upon in the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So thank God that you are called to the marriage of the Lamb. The the proclamation is go out. The bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. So brethren, let's prepare with all our heart and mind to fulfill the mission that the Lamb of God has given us to preach the gospel, to prepare the bride of Christ, and to turn many to righteousness. So we thank God as we look forward to to our service to the whole world during the millennium and the white throne judgment as the bride of Christ. This afternoon we'll want to hear the meaning of the white throne judgment from our presiding evangelist, Mr. Gerald Weston. So let's look forward to this afternoon and let's continue to rejoice in the last great day.